this is your bird story a broadcast of bird stories told by everyday people about their interactions and relationships with wild birds in cities i'm your host georgia solvera Siemens. in part two of parent birding we hear from jen kepler and Bryony Angel. I am very pleased to have Jen on the podcast today. We'll be talking about watching birds as a parent. And I'm really excited that Jen is here because I've been watching uh, or following some of her parent birding on social media. So welcome, Jen. Thank you. (laughs) Why don't you uh, please introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. So I'm Jen Kepler. Um, I'm a mom now (laughs) with a one and a half year old daughter and her name's Kestrel. I work in the field of conservation education, uh, doing work with the Wildlife Conservation Society, specifically at the New York Aquarium. And most of the work that I do is working with volunteers and and working with staff who in the aquarium engage with our visitors and create a really great experience for them. So also my professional life is also dedicated to wildlife, as is my hobby of birding. Is the kestrel your favorite bird? Yeah. So oddly enough, it is one of my most favorite birds and her her name was decided fairly last minute because for my now virtual it became because of covid uh baby shower my sisters put together a game of people guessing my top 10 favorite birds and i gave them this list and they were saying to me, Kestrel would be a really cool name. <laughs> and I brought it up to my my spouse who agreed that it would be a really cool name. And so we have Kestrel. <laughs> yeah, that's a beautiful story. What a nice um, naming story for her. <laughs> well, I know you work at the aquarium. Are aquatic birds um, among your favorite birds? I do like winter specifically because of things like ducks and um those big beepy birds that are out on the ocean I like big birds (laughs) so I love little songbirds and things like that but um I really love like raptors and waterfowl and things like that maybe because they're really easy to look at and um and as now a parent (laughs) you know Canada geese are really great birds because they're easy for me and my daughter to see. So the bigger the bird, because she can't use binoculars yet, the better, because then she's engaged too in looking at things with me. What other big birds have you uh, looked at together? Oh, geez. So we've seen obviously like Canada geese and ducks and things like that. Oh, gulls. We've been, mm. we've had a, a slight change in our daycare routine recently, and it takes us past Sheep's Head Bay. Uh, we bike, I bike with her to work, and just the entire ride through Sheep's Head Bay is boo, 
bird, 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 because she's pointing at all the birds. And they're just, the gulls are so easy for her to see and they're really exciting and they're all around her. What else have we seen? Like little sandpipers, like we've gone to the beach and seen them running. She saw wimbrels. Mm. She watched the American oyster catchers who oddly I thought would be very flighty, but they just stood there and she just stood there and it was, it was awesome. Like I know she's seeing them because she points them and she'll call it a bird. And that for me is really exciting. And it makes birding really exciting too, because you know, we look at birds and see a lot of the same things, the stuff that lives around here and kind of start to dismiss those birds. Oh yeah, I saw a robin. Oh yeah, I saw this. But when you're with a person who the world is really new to them, um, those birds are really exciting. <laughs> They're really exciting for her. And like you, like, it's just like taking someone out birding for the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, their excitement is very contagious. And you know, a little baby like seeing a bird and getting really excited to me. It melts my heart. I love it so much. Well, I have to say her life list is already really quite fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's she's been around a good number of birds. I'll pretend that she saw a lot of them. <laughs> and also for an um an early vocabulary word, an early word to be bird. That's really special. Yeah, very proud of her for knowing um, a couple of animal words or in our home, we have a number of pets. She has, you know, the names of the pets down pat and things like that. But we're still working on like grandma and grandpa. So you've mentioned several places already. Um, Are any of these places um, your pet? Do you have a pet? So when she was like really, really little, Marine Park was always a really nice place for us to go. Um, And Marine Park is still a really great place for us to go because now as a toddler with a lot of energy, uh, one of the things that I consider is if we go birding somewhere, is there a playground nearby? (laughs) Because then we get to go bird and then she gets to have, you know, her fun too. And it's a bonus when the playground's in the park because you can keep birding (laughs) at the playground. We went to um, Marine Park's great. We also, I want to take more time to visit Canarsie Park. Mm -hmm. Um, It's pretty close to where I live. And it just has, I think, a lot of spaces that I don't think a lot of people get to so often. And it has a spectacular playground where actually there was full of sparrows when we last went there. So um, we got to play and still look at birds and everything, but we really like Marine Park a lot because that's really close to home. It's walkable from where, where I live and, um, it's fairly stroller friendly. The gravel could be tough, but with like a running stroller or something with thicker wheels, it's a, it's a decent path. And she, now that she walks, I'm trying to let her walk a little bit more with us and explore a little bit more because that's no fun to be confined. And the green bridge, if you know Marine Park, there's this green metal bridge that overlooks the water. For a kid, like who doesn't love a bridge? So Mm. we went there and she just ran back and forth across the bridge. And I consider that a win because that green bridge is such a great vantage point. (laughs) Everyone can have fun looking at birds, running around, whatever it may be. 
And um, I just think there's a lot of features to that that space that's really exciting to explore and um, different areas to check out that aren't just like there's the marsh. There's also like a little very tiny, but still a little like forested area, the grasslands and um, yeah, it's a lot of fun there. I like it. So it sounds like you've managed to integrate your birding passion with uh, parenting. Um, is that something that you um, thought about as you became a parent or did it sort of, you know, Kestrel came into the world and you said, oh, I still want to go birding. How am I going to make this work? So. I have always, I guess I've always been vocal about <laughs> not specifically wanting kids, really. And here I am. Um, and I know that in becoming a parent, it was terrifying. And I was really scared of maybe having to make sacrifices of the things that I enjoy and the things that I love. And I know that sounds really kind of self-centered coming out, but, um, you know, those are the, the things that I enjoy, the things that keep me grounded and, um, are a way to escape. Birding is also just like a really active form of meditation for me too. And my, my husband and I, we spoke about how we would make sure that we continue to do the things that we like, but to accept that they just might be a little different and, um, we work together to, you know, make sure that we get to do the things that we enjoy. There are times where my husband will hang out with her at home while I go out or come along with me and we can all go for like a nature walk together and mm -hmm. I might lag behind a little bit. Um, so we, we, we discussed that, you know, we understand that our lives will be different, but we didn't necessarily need to give up the things that we enjoy doing, but maybe just adjust them a little bit. And I will say that in adjusting, there are, there are parts that I don't like. Mm. <laughs> I wish I could spend a little bit more time outside or like the, I could just like slow down just a little bit more or stand still and look a little bit harder. But also, like I said, it's made going out a little bit more exciting though to see things through her eyes and see her excitement in exploring something completely new, whether it's a bird or anything, honestly, it's a rock twig or a piece of grass that has a, a cool seed pot at the end of it or whatever. That aspect of this new way of birding, um, hmm. I don't mind it. And it's just a nice way, like, you know, I, birds are, are memories, like certain birds, evoke certain memories for me. So I feel like it's also kind of great memories for myself too. And I hope someday for her too. I have um, two kids and um, birding became a hobby slash passion after my, well, after my first child was born. And um, so I sort of was you know, they were already present in my life before I took on this hobby. So it 
kind of felt like I had to maybe the reverse, but you do have to sort of retrofit your um, your current life to accommodate whatever the new thing is. And it sounds like uh, you and your family have found some strategies to do that. And I have a couple questions still on this topic. So what's your outlook now when you think about places to bird in New York City and how that relates to accommodating people who are birding with small children? Yeah. So, I mean, when, when I go with Kestrel, I have to consider where I'm going for one uh, accessibility. You know, she isn't really, I wouldn't call her an expert walker at this point. She's still wobbly. She's still learning how to maneuver in the world around her. So accessibility is really important, especially if I want to bring a stroller. Actually, the the bird ability uh, group and mm-hmm. website has been a nice resource to access. Uh, we've gone on birding, well, not birding, but we've gone birding on other trips <laughs> with her as like a really, really young, as an infant. And we couldn't not go without a stroller. So having resources like that was really important to help us like plan where we were going because you can't really get that sort of information on like eBird or iNaturalist. So considering what terrain is like, what the gradient is like, things like that. Also, if, if she gets tired or sometimes she gets cranky, even if she's in the stroller, how long trails are because sometimes I have to carry her. (laughs) I remember one time I went out with her in the snow with like the stroller and walked a really, it felt like a very long distance back with her in my arms through snow and it was a mess. Um, So I consider things like that. I also consider also just safety. Mm -hmm. I I don't want to go anywhere where not necessarily it's like an unsafe place, but more so is like the terrain safe for her. Um, you know, we went to, we go to like the beach and stuff. I wouldn't like, for example, she's been to Plum Beach. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't probably not trust her to walk on the side where the marsh is because the ground can be fairly treacherous and there's a lot of litter and who knows what in there. And I don't want her falling. And so mm-hmm. for like a place like that, I would either both as a family or I wouldn't venture to that side. So considering a lot of those things is really important. If I can drive there is also important. Um, We do, we are fortunate that we have a car, so we can drive places. I've been experimenting with using my bike a little bit more and I'm looking forward to doing more of that just how, how to get there too. So we generally haven't gone really outside of Brooklyn or somewhere that is drivable to, we haven't really done, have we? No, we haven't even, I don't think we birded in Manhattan. Um, I am terrified of going on the subway with her alone. And then you toss COVID into all of it because she can't wear a mask. So I tend to avoid (laughs) having to take her on trains and things. Um, so yeah, I guess, That was, in a nutshell, the main things that I really consider is accessibility, uh, safety, and where where it's located, if it's easy for us to get to or not. Okay. Those are all really um, important factors 
right? And some of these, you, I think if you're not um, the guardian of a small child, they don't come into your trip planning. Yeah. So are there times that you have gone birding, managed to do bird watching all by yourself? Yes. <laughs> um, as a new parent and how, how does it feel? What's the difference between solo birding and birding with your child? Yeah. So I will admit that sometimes I do feel a little guilty because I do enjoy being with her, but I will say the guilt doesn't last terribly long. And I hope <laughs> it doesn't sound like a terrible person um, just because like, for example, Last night, you know, just none of us slept well and we didn't get a whole lot of sleep and I put her in daycare and I went out and I like had the morning to myself. I also, you know, take time to do things around the house that I would have a heck of a lot of trouble doing with her around, but, um, it's just like a nice, a nice reset button for me because just to get outside, to take my time to talk to other adults for a little bit. Cause you see other people birding. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice, especially for just myself and my brain. And if it's been like a rough week getting out and being on my own and just like having time. And that is very nice to have. And I'm very lucky to be able to do that. Um, I know not everyone has that option. Um, just can go a lot slower and be out for hours at a time versus a very short period of time. And it, it helps me reset. It sounds like a very um, restorative time for you. And um, we sort of, we all need that. So it's, uh, it's great that you're able to do that. Um, Can you tell us about some of the birds you saw today? Sure. I went to to Greenwood Cemetery here in Brooklyn and I got to see the the eagle or bald eagle rover who was I guess Brooklyn birding famous mm-hmm. um uh what else there are a number of I saw a kestrel and a merlin <laughs> saw my birds of prey which are some of my favorites and um lots of swamp sparrows and white-throated sparrows are are back lots of juncos. Yeah, it was a nice variety of stuff. I think nothing like new flew in. I know that there have been a couple of very exciting weekends of things coming through and but it was a it was a very warm day today. So that that also felt weird to be out in the middle of October and you're seeing like the migrating raptors and stuff and you're also in shorts and sweating and worrying that maybe you should have put on sunscreen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's in the mid seventies today. It is. Um, it feels unseasonably warm. Yeah, for sure. Did you set a goal bird for this migration season? So that's something that now that I'm birding as a parent, I try to let that stuff go. Um, I have. I'm happy for what I see, and I'm grateful that I get to see birds, and. I, I am typically, for especially myself, I, I like to, you know, set goals and beat them every year, but I'm trying to let that go and just enjoy 
seeing birds for just seeing birds. Mm -hmm. So I haven't really been like setting goals, so to speak, because I just want to kind of enjoy it all and not have to worry about, oh, I missed this species and whatnot this year. And I know that there are a bunch of things that I didn't see and I won't see this year, but there's always next year. And, you know, as time goes on and maybe my daughter will like birds and if she does, that's awesome. And if she doesn't, you know, I'm sure she'll have a really big interest in something else and that's okay. But, you know, I'm not going to go crazy about setting goals just because with having a kid, I want to also enjoy being a parent too and enjoy my hobbies still and, you know, just not have to worry about that on the side. I know that some people are really into like the listing and the numbers and I, that would just be anxiety inducing for me. Yeah. There's a certain amount of fear, fear of missing out. Um, especially if part of your birding practice includes social media. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, it's just, it's just not so important to me at this time. And Maybe one day it will be again, but it's okay. I'm okay. Like if I missed a a bird that was here, there'll be another time. And maybe I'll get to go do it with my daughter or with my family. You know, you spoke about, um, you have a lot of memories that are centered on birds. And so um, having that as part of the new phase of your life um, sounds really wonderful. I'm curious if you... Imagine sometimes about if you could go someplace to go bird watching, where would that place be? Like by myself or like with my daughter? You choose. So before my daughter was born and before like everything got crazy with COVID, we we took a, a baby moon, so to speak, and my my husband was so generous to let me pick a birding trip. <laughs> nice. So we went to the Rio Grande Valley. If you're an expecting mother, there's a whole nother series of things that you have to think about if you're going to go on a trip and go birding. I deducted that with all my research and recommendations from people that the Rio Grande Valley would be a great place to go in January. <laughs> <laughs> it was pleasant, the temperature, there was no like extreme hiking, you know, pretty flat. And um, I got to see whooping cranes for the first Mm -hmm. time. And I remember when we went to the place to see them, the the ranger was telling us the best viewing platform, but they're like, you know, they're generally like really far out there. But we got to the viewing platform and uh, was lucky enough to have a, a friend with us who was also visiting the area. So we all went together and we stood on this platform and the cranes were less than a hundred yards away. They were, they felt so close and like we were the only people there and they were just so close, a pair of these cranes just walking and, you know, drinking the water. And it was just so cool to have that moment to ourselves. It just felt so special. And I was like, wow, like I would love to show her this, like, this bird there's so few of them and that this moment was such a special one it's like I would love for her to see this because it was just so cool there um and just like the mix of different cultures coming together because 
you're right on the border with Mexico. Um, there is a lot of Hispanic culture there too. The food is amazing. Um, I would just love to bring her back there and just, just show her this amazing place that we went to before she was born and share it with her in real life. So I would love to go back there because and take her there too. Because that was that was a really great memory for me. It felt like such a special place. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that part of your um, sort of joint history with me. It's a very beautiful story. Well, before I ask a last question, um, there is a creature who is also participating in the podcast and um, would love for you to tell us about um, the bird who lives with you. Sure. We have a a rescue Senegal parrot. His name is Gizmo and he is very tempting to Kestrel because he is a look, but no touch animal, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but he has been in our lives for almost 10 years now, which is crazy. And um, he maybe prepared us fairly well for having a kid. He is incredibly messy. Um, I think messier than the kid. Um, And he's very loud and has his fair share of mood swings, but um, he's also incredibly intelligent and knows how to push the buttons and, you know, play little tricks on us too. So in a way, this little parrot has has prepared us in in a sense for (laughs) what we're experiencing now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, I'm sure that uh, Gizmo and Kestrel can bond on uh, being in your care. Oh, for sure. I, they, I think they're going to be good friends. Uh, Jen, um, you sort of um, spoken a little bit uh, about some of the impacts um, that this passion hobby has had on you. But in closing, yeah, I just want to formally ask you what you think the biggest impact birding has had. On your life? I think that the biggest impact it has had on me is connecting me on a completely different level than I ever expected to be with New York City. Hmm. I did not grow up here, but living here and seeing this was a number of years ago, a swallow-tailed kite fly over my head in Prospect Park and go, I know what that is. And I know it's not supposed to be here. What's going on? And from that moment on, having this world just open up to me with all these different birds that I knew existed, but didn't think for the life of me that they would ever be living right in the green spaces here in New York City. So Mm. um, I've just felt a, a very deep connection to this place. And I appreciate the green spaces that exist and hope that we do as much as we can to keep them around and create more green spaces because it's amazing that even just a small pocket of trees in a little park can hide some really amazing wildlife and being uh, someone who teaches 
teenagers and young people in the city about wildlife and its connection to us and it being right here in our own backyard. Um, just like birds are so accessible. There's so many of them. And in a day you could be like, I saw 30 different species of an animal today. <laughs> like mm. right here in Brooklyn, I think the average person would be like, are you crazy? Like, what did you see? And then you can just rattle off a bunch of bird species. And like, to me, that's just so amazing is that there is wildlife all around us. And um, until either you or someone else around you helps like get you to see that stuff and connect to it also, um, I think it's just so special that we have, we have the access to these, these spaces and the things that they, they kind of just like hide in them. It's just like, it's like really fun to be able to explore and feel adventurous inside a really big city. Yeah. Um, I know this is all audio, but folks like Jen is sort of beaming um, <laughs> <laughs> right now. That was a really great shout out to um, the nature of New York City um, and the ways in which beginning to sort of notice and see or however else you perceive other organisms can really lead to a love of place that you might not expect. So thank you so much, Jen, for joining us today. Thank you so much. This was really awesome to do. I am pleased to be in this Zoom space with our guest, Bryony, and I'm going to ask Bryony to introduce herself. Hi, yeah, I'm, I'm Bryony Angel. I'm um, a lifelong birder, second generation birder, in fact. Uh, I'm based on the west coast of Washington, and uh, I used to live in Seattle, but I recently moved to the countryside. Um, I'm a parent, got an 11-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter. Uh, and I write about uh, the experience of birding as a, as a woman and a parent. And, uh, and so I, I broach topics all over the place from uh, what other women are doing in, in the birding scene, from science to creative output to um, birding culture topics like uh, bird-friendly coffee and wine and things like that. So I'm, um, I am thoroughly immersed in uh, identifying as a birder, uh, both just uh, as a pastime and a lifestyle. Um, what does it mean to you or for you to be a second generation birder? Well, uh, both my parents uh, have birded uh, most of their lives, in particular my father, and he's made a career of, of his love for birds as an artist and writer and um, natural, natural history educator. Um, and so it was, uh, it was something we did as a family. Um, in fact, every New Year's Day, we would go out birding in the Skagit Valley of Washington State, where I grew up. And um, Skagit Valley is an agricultural area, which for the last hundred years has been a world-class birding destination for winter birds um, from the Arctic. Uh, trumpeter swans, um, snow geese, uh, all kinds of raptors. Uh, many of the raptors are here year round, but occasionally we'll get snowy owls and every winter we get short-eared owls as well. And those, you know, just the sort of 
very um, accessible, visually uh, available and easy to get to in terms of very, very little in the way of walking. You can just drive up and there are no leaves on the trees. The birds are big. Uh, they're in large groups. Often they're white, so they're easy to see. Uh, or they're diurnal, like the short-eared owls, you know, so it's a real treat to be able to see these birds. And uh, we used to do that. Well, we still do it, but I grew up doing that every winter. And it became, you know, as much of my family tradition as putting up a Christmas tree um, mm -hmm. would be New Year's winter birding. And as I grew into adulthood, I I, I brought a greater... Um, I brought that confidence from childhood uh, and uh, into venturing out at different times of the year and to different places around the country and the world uh, to see more birds. So this being um, something you've done since childhood, um, do you recognize a spark bird or is that not um, relevant to how you started birding? Oh, I definitely have a spark bird. So I would say my spark bird is a, a chestnut-backed chickadee because it's the first bird that I confidently learned to identify birding by ear. Uh, I, I was pretty much a visual birder all through childhood. I didn't pay attention as much to the, uh, you know, the auditory experience of birding, which now I know is, is almost more important than visual. Um, identification because a lot of birds are hard to see, uh, but we hear them. Um, and so I didn't really start to pay attention to uh, birding by ear and, until I was an adult. And so the chestnut back chickadee was the first bird that I really, uh, with total clarity, like that is definitely a chestnut back. It is not a black cap. I, I can definitely tell the difference. And I love the little chestnuts because they are, um, they are specific West Coast chickadees, so you don't get them in other parts of the country. And they have a very distinct kind of oily tin soldier kind of vocalizing, which is just so, uh, so appealing. Yeah. And very distinct. Are you able to recreate it? No, no. <laughs> Thank you for asking, though. That's funny. No, no. So birding in, you mentioned um, as an adult, you've lived in uh, Seattle and now you're outside of the city and you just talked about um, really honing your birding by ear. Were you able to bird by ear in Seattle? Um, how oh, did you find that experience? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Um, I've heard other people say this. Uh, you know, when they have their, their coming to birding epiphanies is that once you start listening for birds, you can never tune it out. And I, I have, that is definitely my experience. I, I hear birdsong through city noises, through all kinds of environmental um, d d distraction going on. Um, um, but particularly through city noise, I've even heard, I've heard hermit thrushes on Seattle city streets, you know, just they're, they're kind of almost frog-like vocalizing at, you know, the specific times of the year. I've heard that across sounds of cars and, and um, buses and airplanes mm -hmm. overhead. And 
it's it's definitely something uh, you know granted it's for those people who have full auditory capacity I, it would be challenging to you know if if my hearing started to go i would i would lose that that ability to winnow through all the all the noise to hear the birds yeah so you have children so they are third generation birders i'm assuming or on their way to be um could you talk about how you have woven birding into their lives and into your life as a family. Yes, well, it is, it's primarily myself. Um, my husband is not a birder. I mean, he he appreciates my interest, but he doesn't join me in it. Um, and so, uh, and my children have had limited uh, bandwidth for uh, birding at any you know length of time. So. Um, I've it just it's more sort of catch can birding, um, uh, opportunistic. Uh, where we live now is 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 plentiful birding, and they're easy to see. And uh, here we are in the winter as, at this recording, and you can look out and see hundreds of snow geese just off the highway as we drive through the farmland, and. Um, and I can point them out. Um, same with eagles flying overhead or um, owls you know, flying during the day uh, in certain areas uh, of of our community. And so it's I would say it's definitely opportunistic. Uh, there have been a couple of occasions where I I did birding specific outings with my kids. And those were successful because um, the birds were big. They were by the thousands. And it was uh, the landscape where they presented was dramatic. And this, this, on this occasion, this was to go see sandhill cranes in eastern Washington. And I took my son and we went with a girlfriend whose son is, is a good friend of my son. And so he had a companion with him who was same age. And there were there was this big gravel hill that the two boys were playing on and the rest of us were standing waiting for the sandhill cranes to fly in at dusk to their roost. And uh, there was a crowd gathered because this was the sandhill crane festival. So uh, we were all, we were a group led by um, folks who knew where the cranes were roosting and where to, where to stand and wait um, at a respectful distance from the birds so my son and his friend were not paying any attention when suddenly, you know, thousands of sandhill cranes started flying in overhead and vocalizing. And I mean, they just coated the sky. They're huge. And they're just the drama of their size and their flight and their vocalizing. The two boys stopped what they were doing and looked overhead and they're just, their jaws literally dropped. And that was such a satisfying moment because I don't, I don't count on my kids liking birds the way I do. I, I, I include them when I can and I point things out, but I don't want it to be an imposition and mm. an onerous to them. And so as much as I could incorporate my son having fun with a friend and then stopping what he was doing to notice this spectacle of nature, that was that was a perfect moment. So that's kind of what I try to come by. I mean, you can't design birds doing things for you. You have to, you know, it's, it's completely on their terms. So when it happens, it's really special. That's a really great story. And um, both for you to witness him having that 
um, experience and for him as well. And it's something he can share with you and that friend who was in that place at that time. So since, as you say, you can't count on your children being birders in the same way that you are, how do you carve out dedicated time for yourself to go birding? Well, um, I don't really lately. I'm, I am a opportunistic birder for the most part at this, at this time in my life. Um, because I, I work full time and I have kids in school and um, household and um, I'm fortunate to live in a birding paradise. So it, it doesn't take a lot of effort just to look up and see something wonderful or hear something unusual. Uh, we have a lot of migratory action, both big and small birds. So, I mean, right around where I live is forested. So I see a lot of um, small birds, whereas in the, the agricultural fields about two miles away, that's where I see all the big Arctic migrants. So it is, it's opportunistic. It's not super dedicated. It's, um, I, I'm feeling a little guilty. I'm kind of a bad birder at the moment. It's, I just have to take it where I can. Um, and occasionally I'll get an hour or so to myself and I'll, I'll run out. This is where I, I, I'll go to a local wildlife refuge and just take my binoculars and try to work on my gull and shorebird identification. Um, and that's when I have time to myself, I, I, I really I try to focus on learning something new uh, among birds that I'm not as confident about identifying. Um, and there are places around here where I can do that that are close by and I can, I can go there and back within 90 minutes. Um, but mm. that's pretty, that's infrequent. I guess that would be how I would categorize those, those special times that I carve out and what my, my intent is with that time and place. But that's, that's still pretty infrequent. What about the before times, maybe when your children were younger or before you had children, what was your approach to birding, the sort of intensity, the frequency? Yeah, that's a great question. It was much more frequent. I, I traveled um, to see birds um, and would uh, specifically plan birding time in, in all of the circumstantial travel uh, because I had the luxury of, of, of time to myself if I wanted it, you know, in, in a... a in a travel itinerary. Yeah. So, I mean, I birded in Italy. I set aside a day and hired a guide, went out by myself with a guide all across the Po River Delta. Um, I visited a girlfriend who lived in Honduras and she and I birded for five days uh, around Honduras. Um, uh, other parts of the country, uh, not coming to mind specifically, but um, well, Vermont. Yeah, I've birded in Vermont by myself uh, around the Burlington area. During the summer, which was glorious, seeing birds that are East Coast specific that, you know, I count as lifers because I live on the West Coast. It, it definitely took advantage of the of the the time and access uh, to make the most of, of birding uh, before kids. I didn't know it at the time that that was going to be the case. I sure do now. <laughs> <laughs> Given all of that, are there particular parts of um, bird watching with your children that you appreciate or 
sort of value differently than when you were able to bird in a dedicated way? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I hear other people talk about the joy of, of introducing someone to seeing something for the first time and witnessing that excitement, um, that it's, that it's almost as pleasurable as seeing a lifer for yourself. Um, I would say that's true of, of seeing my kids light up when they see something or when they, they comment, um, you know, there's a greater purpose than just personal fulfillment, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in bird watching or, or um, you know, as, a, as, a, as an adult, um, whatever the motives. Um, and my, my motives are, are just to make sure the birds are still there, I think, more than anything. I, I do keep a list, but I'm not a competitive birder. Um, I mainly just want to want to confirm the birds are still there. They still have a place. And, and if I can contribute to that place being protected by my um, being there and, and admiring and appreciating them and, and, and sharing that and, you know, keeping that appreciation going, you know, with the next generation or even just the people standing around me. Um, I think a big part of my effort as a writer has been to appeal to my peers uh, who, who, especially women who aren't into birding yet. Um, I think with education, there's a big push to educate kids, mm -hmm. but I really want to educate my peers. Um, and, you know, now I can, I can attempt to do that to other mothers with kids. Um, but I, and my efforts would be more to, to appeal to the mothers than their children, you know, and then they in turn can appeal to their own kids for that same message. You've written about um, birding like a mother, I think is the term you use. Mm -hmm. um, could you explain that um, for us? Yeah, so my angle is uh, advocating as a mother, uh, as, a, as an individual, as, a, as an adult, not as someone who is trying to engage children in birding, it's the it's the reminder to my my peers in conservation that um, mothers are an important uh, contributor to conservation because we have influence over our family spending and our children's education, and we we need a place at the table. Um, and we need and we need it to be accessible to to our our schedules. Uh, and I think a lot of uh, Let's, you know, just starting with volunteer opportunities or family bird walks or or even just bird walks. Let's just take the family piece out of it, because that kind of is a that's sort of a marginalizing term um, in some ways. A lot of people will avoid those kinds of bird walks because they think, oh, there's going to be kids there. I don't want to go. It's going to be noisy and distracting. So and it doesn't. And so I guess let me back up and summarize this as best I can. Um that uh, organizations, if they want mothers to participate, they need to make it easy for us to do so um, on boards and committees and as volunteers. Uh, and I, I think in a way the pandemic has been a silver lining to making uh, opportunities for moms to participate. It's been, it, it's made it easier because it has normalized remote participation, whereas Prior to the pandemic, um, in-person 
participation was 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 the only thing really it was it was the 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 quote unquote legitimate way to participate and so you got participation from people who have cars and who could take time off work and who didn't have children to pick up and who had no obligations to be home making dinner i mean so basically you got a lot of guys and single maybe single women um and yet all these organizations are saying oh we want parents we want moms on our boards we want you know urban people we want diverse people we want people with access issues yet the participation was was contingent on being able-bodied um having access to a car or a reliable bus um not having kids uh and you know and this is leaving out all the issues of you know racism and the conservation world you know having it be a welcoming environment to begin with for anybody who's not you know sort of the historic conservationist stereotype as a mother i can speak to all of that hmm. and um and these organizations they need to know they need to know that that they need to design participation criteria differently in order to let in new people make it easy for us to participate. And I saw that readily because I'd had the before and after to contrast. And I'd also been maligned when I was on a board and I, I was participating by phone because I couldn't get there because of childcare stuff after work. And I was actually pulled aside and asked to step it up and figure out the childcare thing in order to be there in person or you know maybe consider resigning. And I capitulated. I couldn't believe it. I mean, this was four years ago. So times have definitely changed. I would never capitulate now. But it was those examples that I just thought, really? Mm. I, I need to speak up as a mother, you know, who cares about this and who wants to participate. But you're making it really hard. <laughs> Yeah. Long answer to that question. Well, no, it's um you gave a a really thoughtful answer to the question. I I appreciate the way that you sort of went beyond kind of like a you know, a sound bite or a summary and really opened up your thought process. So, thank you. I've been asking um the following two questions lately and I'm going to ask them of you. I know it's the end of the fall, starting of the winter as we're talking, but I'm curious in your opportunistic birding way, if you have any goal species for, for the rest of the year. Yes. Uh, I, I love seeing owls. I, I love seeing the short-eared owls that come to our region. Um, I don't think we're going to have a snowy owl eruption this year, but snowy owls occasionally come down here too. You know, it's funny enough, it's it's not so much birds, but getting out with other birders. I really mm -hmm. miss birding with friends, and I haven't done that in almost two years. And I that's what I'd really like to do is get out with some other birders. Um, just right around here where I live. So I think, you know, those two things, you know, seeing, maybe seeing an owl and getting out with some, some new local birder friends. That's, that's my goal for the, the next couple of months. I'm curious, um, what is it about birding with other people um, that you miss? 
Yeah, well, I learned so much from other birders. Um, I'm very much a, a kinesthetic learner. I have to, and I have to do it over and over and over. And um, learn, I learn by doing, physically doing it. And I, I don't read a lot. Or I can't retain what I read. So I have to go out and experience it full bodied with, and, you know, it's hard to do that in a vacuum if I'm alone. Uh, and I just, I really, I appreciate the wisdom of other birders. Um, and I, that's how I've learned most of what I know as a, as an observer, a listener. And plus it's just fun to, to riff with other birders. I think birders are an interesting group of people and we have a lot of fun together for as nerdy as we are. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's nice when you find that, that good bunch. Yes. I want to um, sort of end our time with this final question. And it is uh, in thinking about all the times that you've um, spent in this world of watching birds, um, what's the biggest impact that this activity, passion, lifestyle has had on your life? Oh, it's, it's brought me into contact with um, an amazing community of people uh, worldwide and new friends. Um, and it's, it's, it's provided a, 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 a way to connect with people. For me, it's this shared love of wild birds and their protection and conservation. It's just an immediate entry point to reaching out to someone who I, I observe is doing something and that I want to learn more about, you know, as a someone who's always looking for article ideas. And, and also I'm just a social curious person. I, I like making connections with people um, when we share interests and that shared love of birds is such a, it's a very um, kind of innocent, uh, all, wholesome connection with someone and to reach out to someone on that basis is Mm. it it's to me it feels very natural I have I'm you know completely authentic I guess when I when I make the approach and I, I I get that sense from people who approach me for the same reason um it's a real authentic way to connect with somebody and and then go from there and I, I, so it's just, it's been a tremendous gift. This, this, you know, you can, I suppose for some people birding is solitary and it's, they, they, they approach it from a more spiritual or, you know, uh, self-reflective place. Um, but for me, it's, it's a way to connect. Um, and, and so it's, it's provided, birding has provided that wonderful connection with so many people, including both of you. Well, thank you so much, Bryony, for spending this time with us and talking about your experience as a second generation birder and advocating for space for mothers and their um, bird watching habits. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking. We are reminded that the age of a child can influence and impact the kind of birding a parent does. 
and birding with a baby in a backpack will be different than birding with a toddler or tween. Our guests stress the importance of finding places that children like to be, where they can play and do other things rather than just look for birds, especially for children who are too young to use binoculars. Parents learn to bird at a different pace and compromise while still doing what they enjoy as they develop a quote, catch as catch can, end quote, birding practice. And remember to bird as the moment offers. Additionally, parents describe the importance of finding time to bird without children as a way to continue pursuing their interest and as an act of self-care and well-being. We are grateful to the parents who shared their stories, advice, and experiences about birding with children.